You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Oh man, it is so good to be back with you guys again. I know there's some of you who are new, even just the last time I've been here, um, so I'll introduce myself. My name is Brian, and I get to serve as um, the, the lead pastor of the Zero Collective Network, which is this network family of churches um, four churches right now in the greater Grand Rapids area uh, that New Life is a part of. And so I've got to journey with Brad and Sam. Can I just tell you, God is moving so powerfully here at New Life Church. You may not have a perspective on it because you're here every week, uh, or if you're watching with us online, maybe you're snowed in this morning. Welcome uh, joining with us. Uh, man, just that story you just told, Brad, uh, and just the way God is moving here week after week after week, we just hear stories like that. And so, um, man, it's just so good to be with you guys. It's so good to be partnered with you. And uh, Brad and Sam, just so incredibly proud of you both and your leadership and just the way God is moving here over the last couple of years. Yeah, can we just thank our, our leaders? I think this is just a... Yeah. So I get to just kind of come in uh, every once in a while and join you guys. And so I'm excited to be here for week number three of this series we've been calling Captive Liberator. And it's our Christmas series. It's going to culminate this Friday and Saturday with our Christmas services here at New Life. I hope you're planning to come, as Brad was just saying, and invite someone to come and join and be with you. Uh, but the, the series is kind of it's sort of a play on words. Because what we're doing is we're looking at the birth of Jesus. We're looking at Jesus' arrival here on this earth. And we, we said, you know, what Jesus really said he came to do from Isaiah 61 is he said, I came to set captives free. So Jesus came to be the captive liberator. But it's also kind of a play on words because the way that Jesus did it was he came as the captive who liberated. In other words, he joined us in our captivity. He joined us in our self-made prison cells of darkness and brokenness of the world that we find ourselves in. And the reason he did it is because he was the only one who could unlock the door from the inside and liberate us and set us free. And that's really what the Christmas story is about, is Jesus joining us in our lives, in, in our world, and unlocking the prison door from the inside so we could go free. So the question we've just been asking each week of this series, we've been looking at this incredible passage in Isaiah 53, which you just saw a moment ago on the screen. And we've just been asking the question, where do you need Jesus to liberate you? Where in your life do you need Jesus to liberate you? My wife and I have four boys. Our, our second son, when he was seven years old, one day my wife is at home with our boys and all of a sudden she hears Andrew downstairs, seven years old, and she, he, he's making these like pitiful moaning sounds, like he's in pain, like he's hurt. And so she gets the other two kids, you know, kind of situated and she goes downstairs and there she finds Andrew laying face up on the ground and there is a broken, shattered lamp laying right next to him and there's blood all over his face. You can imagine as a mom, I mean, this is a terrifying moment, right? There's this unexplained tragedy she walks into. And so she you know, really quickly goes over, gets him up on his feet. And she has a question. What happened? Right? What happened to you? And so Andrew, with blood streaming down his face, begins to tell her this elaborate story of how he was playing on the ground, lying there on the ground, and somehow the lamp jumped off the table and broke itself on his face, <laughs> which raised some questions. 
for Carrie. <laughs> but again, this is no moment to argue and debate, right? He's got blood coming down his face. So she takes him, she goes into the bathroom, she takes a warm washcloth and she begins to clean the blood off of Andrew's face. And as she's doing that, she realizes she can't find any cuts. Like there's no wounds. And, and so she's looking at it. She says to Andrew, Andrew, I, I can't find where the blood is coming from. And I think this was the moment Andrew realized he was in trouble. And so he said, you want know thanks, mom. I'm feeling a lot better. And he, try, he tries to like walk out of the room. So she brings him back, sits him down. And finally, the truth comes out. Here's the truth. He was playing downstairs and he broke the lamp. He broke the lamp. But then he realized nobody heard it. Like nobody started yelling. Nobody ran down the stairs to find him. And so he thought to himself, however a seven-year-old thinks of this, you know, you know, better to be like the victim of a horrible tragedy, right, than a guilty person who did something wrong. So he goes into the bathroom where he, he knew where we had a container uh, left over of fake Halloween blood from Halloween. This is a true story. This actually happened. He takes the Halloween blood, you know, puts it all over his face, runs over and lays down next to the lamb and starts making these horrible, moaning, pitiful sounds. <laughs> It was all a lie, all a total lie. I tell you that story because uh, every single one of us in this room, every single one of you watching online right now, every single one of us in our lives experience unexplained tragedies. Every one of us have walked in or walked into in our lives or lives of a loved one some sort of unexplained tragedy, a loved one who gets cancer. As this past week, I visited three different people in the hospital connected to our, our Zero Collective family, and one of them actually passed away uh, on Friday. You know, how does this happen? How do, how do so many people have cancer? Uh, I'm on your um, New Life uh, Connect Facebook group. Some of you are on that. I've been following just some of the prayer requests. I mean, children with RSV that are in the hospital, you know, anniversaries of the loss of a loved one. I mean, it's amazing to me how you guys share that and how you care for one another. But we have these unexplained tragic events in our lives. Maybe it's a job that, that fell through without any sort of explanation. Maybe it's, uh, you know, some, some sort of sudden loss that happened in your life, a, a relationship that ended, and without warning, you have no idea why. We all experience unexplained tragedies. And here's what I would say. Underneath every single unexplained tragedy, if you want to go ahead of that slide, underneath every unexplained tragedy in our lives, I would tell you there's a question that we ask and there's a lie that we believe. Under every unexplained tragedy, there is a question that we ask, just like my wife and my wife, what happened? There's a question we ask and there's a lie that we believe. So I just want to look at that this morning. So first of all, the question we ask, whenever there's an unexplained tragedy, the question that we always ask is this question right here, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Said a different way, if God is so good, why am I suffering? Why doesn't he step in? Why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he do something? And I would tell you, if, if you and I, if we do not have a good answer to that question, why do bad things happen to good people? Philosophers have called it the problem of pain. Theologians have written volumes about it. When we don't have a good answer to that question, what happens is we either begin to question God's goodness or we question his power, one or the other. We either question his goodness. We say, well, 
God must not be good then if this is happening, if he's not, if he's not stepping in to stop it. In fact, maybe God wants this to happen. And in our worst moments, we, we actually indict God and we say, well, it must be his fault. He, was, he must be causing this pain in my life. We question his goodness. Or the other thing we do is, is we question his power. We say, well, if he's good and this is happening in my life, maybe he just is too weak to do anything about it. Why bother praying? Why, why bother asking him? Maybe he actually, uh, you just can't do anything about it. I mean, I pray and I pray and nothing changes. And so in our worst moments, we say, well, he must not even be real then. And you know people and I know people who have turned around, deconstructed their faith, and walked away from God because they didn't have a good answer to that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And so all I want to do in the next uh, few moments here is I just want to show you the lie. Remember, there's a question we ask and a lie that we believe. I want to show you the lie that's embedded in that question. So if we could, we're going to go to Romans 3 is the first place we're going to go. And, and the, the writer Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, he's writing to the church that's there in Rome. And what he's doing here, and what we're going to see in a moment, is he literally, in, in chapter 3, he just begins to quote all these Old Testament scriptures. So what he's doing here is he's mostly from the Psalms and the prophets. He's just quoting because he wants you to see, hey, this idea, it's all through the Bible. It's everywhere all through the Bible. And so this is what he says, verse 10. As it is written, because he's quoting all these verses, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. If you continue through chapter 3, he just keeps going, quoting all these verses, building up, building up. He's trying to build up to his main point. And finally, in verse 23, he gets to his main point, which is, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul's literally saying, like, there's nobody righteous. There's no one who does good. They all have turned away. Every single person, every single human being, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if we go ahead and advance to that next one there, underneath every unexplained tragedy, there's this question we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? But, but I would tell you, the lie that we believe is this lie that there is such a thing as good people. That's the lie that we believe. Go ahead if you want to put that up on the screen. We, we, we believe this lie. The problem with the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is it assumes something that's false. There's no such thing as, as good people. The only person, Scripture says, who was ever good, who was ever righteous, was Jesus Christ. Now, hold on a second. Before you chuck a rock at my head, before you turn off the live stream, hang on. I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying, okay? You can email me if you want, if you're upset about this. Uh, it's uh, Brad Vanderson at newlife.com. Uh, you can let me know if you're really upset. <laughs> Josh Anderson, okay, gotcha. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I, what I, I'm not saying I think that you deserve whatever unexplained tragic event is happening in your life right now, okay? That, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we live in a sin-fractured society, and we ourselves, as human beings, every single one of us has been fractured by sin. Okay, so when tragic events happen in our life, when tragic events happen around you and you see it in our world, it's not a punishment by God. It is a byproduct of a sin reality. 
And so when we say that, we have to then ask the question, well, what do we mean by sin? Because here's what I'm convinced of. I don't think we really understand how the Bible talks about sin. I'm talking about in the church even. If even for, with many of us who have come to church our whole lives, who've been Christians for years and years, we don't understand sin. We don't understand how the Bible talks about sin. Most of us, when we talk about sin, what we think about sin is, you know, sin is my own personal bad behavior. It's my own personal bad decisions or, or choices. That's what we think uh, sin is. But actually, when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about it in a much broader way, a much broader term. Sin, the Bible says, is like baked into every single part of our world. It's like the Matrix. Have you ever seen those movies? Where It's just like the reality that covers everything. Every single one of our relationships has been stained by sin. Every, even the creation itself, even our physical bodies have been broken by sin. And we're not the way that we were intended to be. See, most of us, we think of ourselves as, you know, I'm mostly good. I've just got these little areas of my life that are kind of like bad decisions, bad moments, you know, but I'm mostly good. And we think of our world, like we're mostly, our world's mostly good. People are mostly good. It's just, you know, there are these bad apples, you know, here and there, almost like an ocean, right? With these little islands here. It's mostly good, but there are these little islands of bad. But the way the Bible talks about sin, it's actually the complete reverse of that. Sin is like the ocean, and there are these little pockets of good, these little islands of good, good decisions, good moments. But, but really, our reality is sin covers everything in our world. And, and what the problem with that is we soften the truth about our situation. We put some fake Halloween blood on our faces, and we, lay, and we claim our own innocence and come up with an elaborate story about ourselves and our world. And we don't tell the truth about the reality of ourselves and the reality of our world. Um, four years ago for Christmas, for a Christmas present, I got a Fitbit. You guys know what these are, these like Fitbit watches? How many of you have ever had like an Apple watch or a Fitbit watch? Something that like, you know, tracks your steps and tracks all your, um, uh, you know, all, all your miles and all that kind of stuff you walk every day. So four years ago for a Christmas present, I got, you know, one of these watches. I'm, I'm wearing it right now, actually. And um, I was so excited because I was like, man, I'm going to get so healthy this next year, right? I mean, I'm going to now I'm going to be able to track this. I'm going to know, you know, like my exercise. I'm going to know my steps and everything. I'm going to be so healthy. I was excited for the new year. That first year I had that Fitbit on my wrist, I gained 10 pounds. <laughs> and I was so shocked. I was literally like, what? How did this happen? I was wearing the watch. I was into Fitbit fitting every bit of this cake in my mouth, apparently. <laughs> I guess that's what I was doing. Here was the problem with the Fitbit. What was happening was I suddenly had this thing on my, on my wrist that was measuring all the good stuff I was doing, all the steps I was taking, all the miles I was walking, the, the flights of stairs I was going up and down, the calories I was burning, and it was giving me this false sense, right, of how good I really was. Like, man, that's even more steps than yesterday, but what it, the Fitbit was not doing was measuring all the bad stuff I was doing to counteract the good stuff. I, I would just, I'd be like, man, I feel really good. So late at night, <laughs> even more food. By the way, if you struggle with insomnia like I do, and you're looking for a food late at night that really helps you just stuff the feelings down, peanut butter. <laughs> oh, man. There is nothing better late at night, just straight out of the jar, just a bunch of peanut butter just helps you. It just pushes those feelings, all those emotions right down. You can just go straight to bed. It's awesome. 
That's what I was doing. This is what I was doing. And, and those 10 pounds did not come off until I finally got honest about all the bad stuff I was doing to counteract all the good stuff that I was doing with, with the Fitbit watch. It's the same with us. Now, now we can you know, joke around, that's a, that's a silly illustration, but I mean, this, this plays itself out in my life in all, all kinds of very serious ways. A few months ago, I was talking to my coach, um, my, my counselor. By the way, you should know that. As a pastor, I have a coach. Uh, we, once a month, we meet. He serves as a counselor for me. And he, we've walked together for many years. He knows my life. He knows the places where I struggle. And so uh, my wife, Carrie, and I, who, she's amazing. We've been married for 24 years. But we were, honestly, a few months ago, we were uh, working through a pretty rough situation in our marriage. By the way, you should know that too. As pastors, we don't have perfect marriages. We go through really tough times in our marriage too. And so I was talking to my, my counselor about it and I, you know, he knows me so well, but I, here's what I was saying. I was saying, you know, Carrie and I, we're just having a struggle right now. You know, we, we just got like this challenge. That, that, those are the words I was using, like a struggle, a challenge. There's a situation right now that's just kind of challenging. That's how I was talking about it. And finally, at one point in the conversation, he just stops me. He goes, hold, hold on a minute, Brian. He goes, why don't you just call it what it is? You're sinning, and you are rebelling against what God would call you to be as a husband, and your pride and your ego won't let you admit it. And you know what? He was right. He was 100% right. See, the, the reason I don't like words like sin, rebellion, the reason I'd much rather use words like my struggles, my challenges, use those words, is because words like sin, rebellion, uh, disobedience, those words get a lot closer to the truth about me. That at 45 years old, following Jesus for more than a couple decades now, you know, a pastor, I'm supposed to be this example for all of you, there are still in my life these unconverted places, you know, places where I know the right thing I should do, I know it, but I can't always just will myself to do it. I'm not totally free. You know why I know I can say that to you? Because you're not free either. None of us are. You've got those unconverted places in your life as, as well. Maybe yours are different than mine. Well, we've got all of us, these unconverted places in our lives, these places where we're not totally able to follow after what God would have us be. So the question this morning is, so what's Jesus going to do about it? What difference does he make? And so this passage, Isaiah 53, it's hard to overestimate or over, you know, uh, describe how important this passage of Scripture is in um, in the Old Testament. Seven hundred years before the birth of Isaiah or the birth of Jesus, Isaiah writes these four servant songs. They're called in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah fifty three is the fourth and greatest of the servant songs. And what happens in this passage? We've been looking at it all month. Is ten times in this passage we're told that Jesus is going to take something on Himself that belongs to us. Ten times. And so we're looking at verses four through six today. And maybe we can just even um, say this together. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our 
Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our. He was crushed for our. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now here's the thing about that, those verses we just read. We love the first part of those verses. We do not like the second part of those verses that we just talked about there. It says, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. We say, yes, praise God, that's awesome. Please, Jesus, these unexplained tragic events of my life, well, you know, why did these bad things happen? I, please take my pain, take my suffering. We're all about that. But my transgressions, my iniquities, what are transgressions and iniquities? The word for transgressions in that passage is very, very similar to our English word for rebellion. Transgression, rebellion, it's, it's when we willfully choose to do something we know we shouldn't do, and yet we still do it. That's transgression. And the word iniquity, the, the word that's, that literally translated means guilt for sin. Guilt for sin. And here's what happens. Anytime we talk about sin, anytime we talk about this passage of Scripture, he took our transgression, he took our iniquities, uh, you know, people will ask the question, well, aren't you shaming people? Isn't that what you're doing right now? And, and in woke culture, oh, man, that's like the worst thing you can do is like shame people, bring, you know, bring shame on people for anything that they're doing. So here's what I want you to hear. Uh, the, when the Bible t talks about shame and guilt, those are two different things in the Scriptures, Shame and guilt are two different, different words. Okay, guilt, when it says my iniquity, my guilt for sin, guilt is when we feel bad about something we actually did and we realize it was wrong. That's a good thing. We should feel that way. When we've done something, just like my son when he broke the lamp, right? It's like when we do something wrong and we know it was wrong, we should feel a sense of guilt. Shame, though, the way the scriptures talk about shame, shame is when that bad thing we did becomes an identity, so it's not just something I did, it's who I believe I am. So, so follow me. It's not just that I failed, that's guilt for sin, that's iniquity. It's I must be a failure. I didn't just sin. We begin to take on this identity and believe, well, all I, I must be is a sinner. That's all I'm ever going to be. This is just who I am. Tomorrow's always going to look like today. Nothing could ever possibly change. And, and Jesus came that, to deliver us and to take on our shame and our guilt, our transgressions and our iniquities, our pain and our suffering. And he came to, bore, to bear it and to take it away. Jesus doesn't just cancel people. He cancels sin. He cancels iniquity, Amen. transgression, so the people go free. He's the captive liberator. That's who he is. Paul goes on, or I mean, I'm sorry, Isaiah goes on. That very next verse says, we all like sheep have gone astray. It's just what Paul was saying in Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The gospel message is that every single one of us have gone astray. Bad things can't happen to good people. That's only happened once in all of you know, history, and that was to Jesus. 
All of us have sinned. All of us have gone astray. So what Jesus did is he took all of our sin and wrongdoing on himself. In the incarnation, Jesus entered our prison cell. He entered our, our captivity with us, and he unlocked the door from the inside because he took our punishment, our prison sentence, he took it on, on our place so that we could walk out of the jail cell free. So what do we do with that information? What, what do I, here, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to take with you this morning from, from this incredible passage of Scripture, from this message. Go ahead, if you will, to that next slide. You need to know we do not have a preventer we have a savior. We don't have a preventer. We have a savior. Why is that so significant? Because what we want a lot of the time is a preventer. The, the great preventer, that's who we pray to, isn't it? God, will you prevent any bad thing, any, any unexplained tragic event? Will you prevent anything bad happening in my life? We, we, we say, God, if you really are who you say are, you, you should prevent. But Jesus didn't come to prevent pain and suffering. The other thing he doesn't do, Jesus, when, when, you, when you ask him into your life, when you become a follower of Christ, he doesn't prevent you from ever sinning again. In fact, that's not even really what he came to do. Now, that doesn't mean you don't change. Man, so much of my life has changed as I've let Christ be Lord of my life. So much of those areas, those, those unconverted places in my life have have been transformed and changed by him. But there are people who like say, man, I'm not going to become a Christian because then I'd have to be perfect. Jesus didn't come to prevent you from sinning ever again. He didn't come to prevent you from ever experiencing pain and suffering. He came to cancel all of it. Pain, suffering, uh, iniquity, transgression. He came to pay for it. He's a savior. He's a rescuer. He doesn't cancel people. He cancels sin. That's what he does. One of my most vivid Christmas memories is uh, the Christmas that my grandpa died. Uh, my dad's dad, um, he was, it's hard to even describe how big a figure he was in our lives. He was always around our house growing up. I was eight years old, um, and a couple weeks before Christmas, he shocked our whole family. Uh, he had a massive heart attack and passed away, completely through my parents into this world of suddenly trying to have to figure out, you know, what are we going to do with the estate? What are we going to do with, you know, funeral arrangements and, and, you know, visitation and all this kind of stuff? And so the truth of the matter is, this all happened in the month of December. And so that year, uh, because my parents were so occupied, there was no Christmas decorations at our house. There was no tree that had been put up. And the truth is, no presents had been bought. And my mom, as, as every day is clicking away, and they're working through all this stuff with my grandpa's death. My mom is feeling this burden of, man, are we going to get to Christmas Day? And we're not even going to have anything for our kids. For me and my, my younger sister and my younger brother. So I, I have this memory. My grandpa's funeral was just a few days before uh, Christmas. I have this memory. It's all over. And we're, we're driving back home in the car from the cemetery. It's, it's nighttime. We drive into our driveway. We all get out of the car. And we walk up to our house, and we turn the door, push the door open, and flip on the lights. And the whole house is lit up with Christmas decorations. There is a tree that has been put in our living room, and it's been decorated, and there are presents everywhere underneath the tree. 
And I have this memory of just all five of us in our family just standing there, just blown away. This is not the house that we left. Now, for me and for my, my seven-year-old sister and my five-year-old brother, we had an explanation for this, right? Santa! Santa came! He came early! And my, my parents let us believe that. But the, the truth is actually way better. And I can only imagine, as an adult now, looking back, what that moment must have, how powerful that must have been for my parents standing in there, in the room that night. Here's the truth of what happened. We had a friend named Larry, and Larry had a key to our house. So while we were at the funeral, while we were in the middle of our worst grief, our worst pain, Larry let himself in to our house. And at his own expense, decorated this whole house, wrapped all these presents, put a tree up, decorated the tree, and set the table in this incredible, beautiful act of love on our behalf. Do you see it? Do you see it, my friends? That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. That's the story that we celebrate every year around this time. What we celebrate is that Jesus did that for us. He, he was the one that came on our behalf. So whatever unexplained tragedy you're going through right now, whatever tragic event has happened in your life, wherever it is in your life, you're asking, why, God? Why did these things happen? You need to know you have a friend, and he has a key. He's the only one who does. And Jesus let himself in to your worst pain, your worst grief, and he took everything on himself, at not just at the expense of his money, but at the expense of his life. He paid the price for you so you could be liberated, so you could be set free. That's the gospel message. That's the salvation. That's what the incarnation represents. John Stott, a great theologian, said it way more eloquently than I'm saying. He said, sin is you and me substituting ourselves for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. He's the captive liberator. So I want to talk here as we close, and as in a moment we're going to stand and sing, and uh, as we go to prayer here, I want to talk to two different groups of people here in the room, two different groups of people watching online. Um, the first one is I want to talk to any of you who are walking through an unexplained tragedy right now. And you don't have a great answer to the question, why, why do bad things happen? Why, bad, why, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? There, there are no such thing as good people. So the only question then that remains is, why do bad things continue to happen to saved people, to people who put their faith and their trust in Jesus? And the only answer to that has to be because he's got some kind of purpose in it. He's not done yet. And so the invitation for you is trust him with your pain and your suffering. Go ahead, trust him with your pain and your suffering. Let him into it. Do you need the friend who has the key? Let him walk with you. Let him journey with you. And then the second group of people uh, I'd talk to is maybe you're, work, you're wrestling with a sin, an addiction, and maybe you've just even come here this morning 
or what turned in, tuned in on this morning after another fresh round of failure, there's an unconverted place in your life just like there is in all of our lives. And, and you're going, man, I, why can't I just stop? Why can't I just will that? Why can't I just fix that? And maybe for you uh, this morning, maybe, maybe what you need to do is just own up to your transgressions and your iniquities. Just tell the truth about your situation. Stop softening it. Stop talking about it. It's not a struggle. It's not a challenge. It's a sin. It's a transgression. It's a place in your life where you're broken. Just tell the truth about it. And here's the beautiful thing. When we do that, when we come to God in confession, when we say, God, when we say the same thing about our lives that he's saying, when we admit it, when we just say, God, this is where I need you. This is where I'm broken. This is where I've fallen short. Jesus doesn't cancel people. He cancels sin. Do you need the friend who's got a key? So would you do this? Would you stand in the room? And I'm going to invite our, our prayer uh, partners just to kind of make themselves available here in the room as well. This morning, do you need, uh, as we sing, as we worship, you need to just uh, spend some time in prayer. Maybe allow someone to pray with you. Um, if you want to even just make space right up here and just make this a space, a holy space where you can just bow down and just do some business with God. Whether it's pain and suffering, whether it's sin and transgression. Jesus, right now, we just come to you. We just recognize you are the captive liberator. You don't cancel people. You cancel sin. And we need that this morning. We need you. God, we don't need a, you know, a better explanation or a better answer to all the questions of, of why, why things have happened in our world. We need one who would prevent everything bad from happening. We need a savior. We need a savior. We need one who can cancel it, who can give us a hope and a future for tomorrow that's based on not ourselves or our own good behavior, but based on you. And we have that in you. So this morning we come to you. We just ask you, God, to set us free, to liberate us, God, from the places in our lives where we need you. We thank you that you came, surely you bore our pain, you took up our suffering, and that you were pierced for our transgressions, you were crushed for our iniquities. And so this morning, we thank you for who you are. We ask you to be glorified in our lives and in our world. And God, even as we look forward to Christmas and celebrating here in a few days, God, that more and more people would just be drawn to the truth that we don't have to stay stuck in a prison cell. We've been liberated. So we love you, Jesus. In your precious and powerful name, we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen.